Hello and welcome to this book club on values, voice and virtue, the new British politics by Professor Matthew Goodwin, who is very kind enough to join me today. How you doing? Good. Thank you very much. It's nice to see one of the few academics who I had respect for during my time at Kent. Right. Yeah. So I was I was there for three years, suffered under most of the strikes and lockdown and yourself, uh, Philip Cunliffe and one or two in the English department stayed high in my estimation. So, Oh, good. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I didn't strike. I thought we'd uh, given students enough grief, to be honest. We needed to just get on with it. Yeah, we took on a hell of a lot of debt to basically get nothing back. So it's good that you were one of the few people that actually had a conscience there. Um, I'm definitely seeing a sort of growing cohort of, because you, you said off air that you're you're late millennial, but the sort of- I'm a geriatric millennial. That means I was born in 1981, but technically I feel like a Gen Xer. So I feel very different from millennials. Yeah. Gen Xers are famous for working hard, playing hard. I'm not sure what millennials are famous for, but I feel that. Like I was a child of the 80s and my first real political moment was probably Blair coming to power in 97. Well, don't, I don't really remember the Thatcher era that much, but I was kind of pre-social media, you know, pre-9-11, mm. pre-woke you know, so that that's my background. Yeah, I was ninety eight, so right. I'm I'm born after the Blairite paradigm. I once had a Twitter engagement with, with Peter Hitchens asking him for advice, and he said, "Well, you should have read my column in two thousand three. And I was like, <laughs> "I was five, Peter. You know, I've, I've grown up in in Blair's abolished Britain, and and would quite like some more." And you've actually provided a, a fair fair amount of information on on how he helped destroy Britain with the, the paradigm of unquestionable politics and a lot of the polling of how people were out of lockstep, the political establishment were out of lockstep yeah. with the electorate. But ju just to harken back to the Gen X thing, this is something that we that we mentioned off air, yeah. is that there's a growing cohort of discontented Gen Xers yeah. who seem embittered by the 90s promise of things yeah. can only get better, end yeah. of history. Um, you seem to be among one of those, which is... Yeah, definitely. I mean, I thought the 90s were great. I mean, I feel sorry for, you know, my students are are Zoomers, they're Gen Z. They were born in 2004, my first year students. But uh, I feel old. I, I actually feel sorry for the kids today that didn't experience the 90s because the 90s were great. I mean, mm. it's like pre-social media, pre-mad progressive wokeness. It was just very real. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were some bad sides to it, but basically mm. it was fun, vibrant, culturally interesting um it was still in the aftermath of the end of the cold war so there you know there was a sense that something interesting politically was about to happen um but i think when you look at the generation my generation that came through the big slogan of that time was things can only get better mm. that was new labor's pitch right against the backdrop of thatcher and what i think then happened was basically britain got taken over by what i call in the book the liberal revolution mm. right so First, you had Thatcher. She she ushered in a radical economic uh, liberalism, which was basically about liberalising finance, deregulating the city, and investing heavily in London and the southeast commuter belt. Mm. Um, some of those reforms were needed, like for sure, but they also had massive costs that we can now see around us today. And then Blair followed by accepting much of that economic legacy. He didn't really changed the fundamentals, he tinkered around the edges, but he ushered in a radical cultural liberalism, mass immigration, um, kind of rights-based legislation, Equalities Act, Human Rights Act, um, basically set the stage for gender identity, basically set the stage for radical progressivism. And by the time you get into the 2010s, when we had this you know, seismic political moment, where you've got these three big rebellions that go against all of that, you've got Farage and UKIP, you've got Brexit, 
bigger revolt, and then you've got the post-Brexit realignment with Boris Johnson. You know, all of that, in my mind, having gone on this journey, was basically a pushback against that liberal revolution because the blunt reality is that worked really well for university graduates, for people in the city, for professionals, for social liberals uh, who saw their values and their voice basically reflected back at them. But if you didn't go through the universities, if you were culturally conservative, if you were older, if you were working class, um, that liberal revolution, as we now know from lots of research in economics and other areas, basically hit you harder than everybody else. Mm. And then when you did try and push back against it by voting for Brexit or Farage or whatever, the rise of this new elite group in society, liberal middle class professionals, with university degrees and parents in the graduate class, they basically said, well, hey, you're an ignorant gammon, you're a racist, you're a thicko, you're a little Englander for trying to reassert your voice in the system. So this book is basically, I guess, not really about the last couple of years. It is essentially about the last 50 years in Britain, mm. written by somebody who has been on a significant amount of that that journey, right? And uh, it's certainly the most personal book I've written. It's the sixth book I've written, but it's definitely the most personal book I've written because, to be frank, I'm hacked off with the state of the country. Yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, every single manifesto for the last 10 to 15 years has promised to control or reduce immigration numbers to the tens of thousands. And then we've gotten the recent revelation that not only did we have 606,000 net last year, but it's projected to now go up to a million. So it's a it's a continual betrayal and it goes against the all the poll numbers that, that you cite as being the will of the British people in here. There's, there's a disparity between what the electorate want and what the politicians are doing. So I think, you know, my starting point on this question, right, is is the political economy. Mm. So how can we build a country that works for everybody? Yeah. And what's basically happened from 97 onwards is I think we've had the rise of a generation of politicians who are no longer interested in building a political economy that works for everybody. They're interested in basically reshaping the country around people who look and sound and think like them. And you can see this in all aspects of Britain today where mass migration is being used to essentially plug the holes in our national economy. Mm. So we've got 5 million working age people now dependent on welfare benefits um, rather than ask questions about how we can get them back into work, rather than ask questions about how we can give them a greater sense of meaning and dignity over their lives. It's easier just to turn to mass migration. Uh, we've never expanded the number of medical places in universities for British kids to become doctors and nurses and specialists. So instead, what we do is we rely on mass migration. We import cheap doctors and nurses from overseas, some of whom don't have the same uh, level of education and qualifications as British doctors do. And we say we're going to rely on mass migration to plug the gaps. Uh, we were told after Brexit, we'd have a new economy that was investing in British workers, uh, that was going to invest in non-graduates, that was going to invest in people that want to do technical, vocational, educational qualifications. What have we done? Well, we've massively expanded the number of international students and their relatives mm. to keep this broken system of higher education going. So again, we've relied on mass migration to fill the holes in our broken political economy. And the, the effects of this now are just you know mind-blowing because... Yeah, I'll give you one example that, that I talk about a lot now. We are now spending £1.8 billion a year 
on dealing with the effects of our broken immigration system by putting illegal migrants and asylum seekers in hotels. Right? Human battery farms. 1.8 billion, right? That is more money than we are currently spending on leveling up the Northwest and Northeast and Yorkshire combined. That's to make good on the the failed promises that you said that, that came out of the Thatcher neoliberal reforms years ago that now the Tories feel they have to pander to, and that's what won them the Red Wall. And then to have that juxtaposition, no shock that they're probably going to lose the next election, right? Well, levelling leveling up was never taken as seriously as it should have been because the Conservatives never understood that levelling up was as much about power and respect as it was about buildings and money. Yeah. Uh, the people who are outside of the cities and university towns didn't just want a few civil service departments and a few levelling up funds made available, which are largely poultry in size they're basically used to you know build new bus stations and have a couple more trains and whatever uh what we needed was a wholesale reshaping of our political economy why is it that our mid-level cities the nottinghams the sheffields the swindons and elsewhere why is it that they perform so much worse the mid-level, small-level cities in the rest of Europe because we've never invested in them. And levelling up was supposed to be a pathway to doing that. And what we've done is we've basically taken the easy option. We've said, actually, we're not going to do any of that now. Well, the Conservative Party has taken the easy option. What we're going to do is we're just going to keep spanking all this money on stuff that is just basically putting a plaster over the problems of, of this broken economy. So this is why I think today in the spring of 23, the Conservatives are destined to lose the next election. Um, they are not in touch with the new people who voted for them at the last election, workers, non-graduates, pensioners. They don't really understand who they are as a party anymore. And I think, you know, I'm increasingly questioning whether actually the Conservative Party can even survive the next few years and decades, because I think there are generations of voters coming up now who are looking at the Conservative Party and saying, well, you're just not conservative on any level. I mean, you're not conservative when it comes to migration, when it comes to gender identity, when it comes to wokeism, when it comes to our history, when it comes to economics, when it comes to leveling up, when it comes to culture, identity, history, and so on and so on. What is it that you are conserving? Because there's a generation of voters looking at the last 13 years who are going to say, well, you basically just got rolled over. Every major policy decision, every major battle with the other side, you basically lost, with the exception maybe of leaving the European Union. But even that was was fumbled and managed badly. It's a messy divorce. It's a messy divorce that's still ongoing. And it's also something that, you know, we're we're not making the full use out of. So the conservatives, you know, I would say to people today, compare our conservatives the Conservatives in Sweden, Italy, France, Spain, and America. Because our Conservatives intellectually are bankrupt. They don't know where they're going. They don't have any ideas for the country. Yeah, there are two so there are two things I wanted to spin out of that. First is is the National Conservative Conference, which I attended. You spoke at your speech I could describe as a very accurate lay of the land, but also an unrelenting Pez dispenser of black pills, because things are so bad, it couldn't help that by being accurate, it was a bit depressing. Um, but it was very good. And also in, in attendance, it felt there was a great contrast between speakers like yourself or Mary Harrington, um, and the politicians who showed up only to do their speeches, not listen to anything else that anyone else was saying, when we had a conversation within the right about parochial conservatism rather than managerial neoliberalism, and then went away not realising the kind of frosty reception they got. And I think that was best uh, epitomised by, by two people. One, Suella Braverman, 
And I, I shocked some former Lib Dem woman on, on GB News when I was talking about this. But Suella Braverman, her speech was liberalism. It was just liberalism repackaged as conservatism. Because when she says that the fundamental values of Britain are democracy, equality, and uh, um, freedom, it's like, okay, sure, but there's there's no there's no distinction about like British history, British cultural values, as you said, that's, that's separate from the global liberal project. So it's something like a, a universal sense of human decency. She said something like that. It's like, not quite right. And then Michael Gove as well, who again got a very frosty reception because he said there's no conservative who would be more at home in the Liberal Democrats than in the Conservative Party. You, Michael. And the two policies he cited as achievements from the last 13 years of Conservative governments was those five million extra people on the streamlined universal credit and the superficial diversity of our institutions. So just just pointing that out, the contrast between what you said at that conference, the sort of disgruntled late millennial Gen Xer, versus the political establishment was was pretty massive, I think. I think that's largely because there are no real achievements that have been made by the Conservative Party over the last 13 years. On every major promise, really, they've they've not delivered. And, you know, migration is the obvious one, but there are many others. The investment in non-graduates, the reshaping of the country, uh, defining what global Britain is, um, you know, reasserting our distinctive history and identity is a, is another. Allowing, Family policy is allowing the sexualisation and politicisation of children in primary and secondary schools, and more generally, I think just gaslighting the country, just saying that actually none of this stuff is happening. I mean, look, I, I've. I'm not a kind of passive academic. I mean, I've been in the trenches the last three years fighting mm. for the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill. Like, I've been designing legislation. I've been, like, trying to push back against what I consider to be a serious threat to free speech and expression from radical woke progressivism. And we won that fight. Like, we won that. We got the bill through. It got royal assent 10 days ago. It is now on... Um, universities, there is now a, a legal statutory obligation on them to promote free speech and they can be sued if they don't do that. So we are not going to have another Kathleen Stock case in this country because if that were to happen again, that university is getting sued, that university is getting taken to the courts. It's the one thing I'm most proud of doing in my life. I'm 41 and I can say I've helped change the law and I think we've made Britain a better place. But don't get me wrong, that should be happening across every major sector of British society. We should be pushing back and defending the things that make this country great across the board. Free speech, free expression, right? pluralism, the ability of people to say what they think. You know, in this country, 60% of voters now say, I don't feel like I can really say what I want to say because of this stifling orthodoxy, because of this pol political correctness. And I think basically people have had enough of that. And I think they're looking for alternative forms of politics, alternative leaders who will stand up and say, actually, you know, we're not going to keep rolling over. We're going to go toe to toe, right? And I think if you look at America, you look at France and Italy, that's what's happening. You're getting conservatives who are saying, actually, our default position isn't to just kind of dilute radical progressivism. Um, our position here is to stop it. Mm. Our position here is to root it out of institutions. And we're not going to actually just set up parallel institutions. We're not going to set up different universities, different schools. We're not going to do homeschooling. We're going to stay in the institutions and we're going to fight for the institutions. And that to me was what the higher education academic freedom bill was all about. And I'm glad to say that uh, many of the many of the people on Twitter and elsewhere who were saying, you know, well, we don't need this law. It's not, it's not important. They lost. They lost that fight because they weren't organized. Mm.
So I'll, I'll actually come back to, to higher education shortly because I, I like your conceptualization of how it created the new elite as a sort of self-perpetuating factory for, for ideological indoctrination. But one of the things I, I wanted to come back on is you're, you're totally right. There are loads of people disenfranchised. One of the stats that I like that you've tweeted out before and also included in this is, I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, about six out of 10 people that said they had voted for Boris in 2019 were considering not voting at all because they didn't feel substantially represented in the next election. So this is my question. Why, if if this is absolutely the case, and I, I know family members that feel the same, they don't they don't feel that they've their vote was respected. Why is it that the marginal parties are not really increasing in the polls yet? Yeah. And lots of people are playing Halo politics of where they're just putting up the pause menu and go, well, blue team's losing, I'll switch to red team. The first thing just to say before getting to that is just a quick point about Boris Johnson, right? Boris Johnson was not a conservative. Yes. Boris Johnson is not a conservative. Boris Johnson is basically a kind of liberal, cosmopolitan, a bit bohemian, is basically worried about how the rest of the world sees him mm. and is certainly not a radical in any meaningful sense of the term. Uh, he was handed this enormous majority, the biggest since the Thatcher era, and did nothing with it. Political historians are going to look back and just look at this as the the, the most you know, the biggest waste of an opportunity for any uh, for any government in a very long time. If you're being sympathetic to Johnson, you'd say, okay, COVID in Ukraine. But the reality is he went into power with no serious plan for what he wanted to do. And mm. that, you know, set the stage for trust and it set the stage for the implosion of the Conservative Party. And this is really getting at a deeper question that, that conservatism now faces, which is what is it? Where does it want to take the country? And look, there's a battle going on now globally to try and define what the next phase of conservatism is going to be. And there are those who say it's basically about um, you know, slashing taxes, pushing back the state, letting the market thrive, which we saw at NatCon with a few prominent cabinet speakers. The puppeteered corpse of Thatcher. Yeah. And then there are other conservatives who understand that the foundations of politics have changed and actually you need to use the state to intervene and defend the, 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 the world that you cherish, uh, who understand the need to not just promise to slow down social and cultural change, but, but actually do it, um, and the need to realign their electorates, to, to not just mobilize places like the Red Wall once upon a time, but to permanently reshape and reinvent conservatism around a completely different electorate. Now, 2019 showed it can be done, 2016 in the US showed it can be done. Georgia Maloney shows it can be done in Italy. Um, many other conservatives are showing that it can be done. Um, the, the British Tories, however, are kind of status-obsessed, kind of liberal business Tories, yeah. right? So they view culture wars as being beneath them, which is why they've allowed this massive chunk of territory, women's rights, children's rights, history, who we are, what are our values, to be completely carved off in the political debate and repackaged as toxic culture wars. That's how weak today's conservatives mm. are, that they've allowed a large swathe of their own territory to be repackaged and written off as stuff we shouldn't really talk about anymore. That's how intellectually weak today's conservatives are. They've not put up a fight. And, and then on the odd occasion when they have, Take, for example, opposition to the SNP's gender recognition reform bill in Scotland, which tried to allow 16-year-olds to legally change their gender without any medical supervision. 
The Conservatives did so while defending the Equalities Act. So they yeah. kind of did so while standing on the legacy of New Labour. I can't remember a single Conservative that stood up and said, do you know why I oppose this? Because gender because radical gender identity theory is not grounded in science mm. and it's insane. No, I can't remember a single Conservative who said that. Other than Miriam Cates at the National Conservative Conference. Well, Mir Miriam Cates is... In some other galaxy, Miriam Cates is leading the Conservative Party uh, and is doing a very good job. But yeah. I fear that um, it's the a problem within the Conservative Party is a parliamentary party. The parliamentary mm -hmm. party basically and the donor class don't represent much of the rest of the country. So why are the minor parties struggling? Because we've got a first-past-the-post majoritarian system, mm -hmm. which is a complete and utter nightmare for any new parties to break through. Mm. You, you, there are only two ways you can do it in a British system. One is locally which is the Lib Dem model. You basically take 20 years of campaigning in local elections and building yourself up, but mm. even then you're very vulnerable. You're very vulnerable to, to losing a lot of territory. And the second is top-down mm. defections, right? Top-down, replacing one of the parties. Mm. So Labour replacing the Liberals, Canadian Conservatives replacing the more progressive Conservatives in the early 90s. It's not impossible, but it's very, very difficult. Yeah. I think essentially what needs to happen in Britain is you either need to change the dominant faction in the, in the Conservatives, which is very, very, very different, or you need to get to a point where it becomes so obvious and visible to everybody that the Conservative Party should no longer basically survive, that the Conservative Party should no longer be trusted with the country. Um, and if the defeat that is coming for the Conservative Party is, 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 is comprehensive enough, uh, and the Conservatives really are forced onto the back foot, then there will, I think, open up some kind of opportunity uh, to create some kind of alternative uh, to that party. Now, uh, difficult, but not impossible. So it could either be an extinction event or, optimistically, if the Conservative Party still exists, an opportunity to depose the leader incumbent, which is... Penny Morden because she can carry a sword. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I take. I mean, this is what I'm talking about with the Conservatives. I mean, you know, the idea that you know Penny Morden or you know Tom Tugendhat have what it takes to lead Britain and um, uh, respond mm -hmm. to the concerns and the divides that are driving the large majority of voters, I think, is is just not plausible. Um, where we're heading over the next five, 10 years is going to make the 2010s look like a gentle stroll in the park. We are going into issues that are going to be very, very bumpy. We're going to see migration on a scale that we've not seen before. I suspect we're going to see higher rates of unemployment and a protracted cost of living crisis. I think we're not going to fix the regional inequalities that remain very pressing in this country. And I suspect we're going to see a much stronger onslaught against the cultural guardrails that hold people together, national identity, national history, mm. um, the, the very real distinction between men and women, um, you know, the, the rights of children, the rights of women. I think that's all going to become a lot more visible over the next 10 years. And I think there are lots of people probably watching this show who are looking at the Conservative Party and thinking that party does not have the answers to those problems. Yeah, I I am very much a, a results-based person. So if there were a top-level insurrection for the Conservative Party, I would be happy if they collapsed and a marginal party decided to represent our interests. I'd be equally delighted. Now, something that you've touched on in the book, 
and in this conversation, is the concept of whether deliberately or just institutionally deafened is of the new elite. And the new elite seem to be a product of the university system. They seem to be a product of the Blairite paradigm, how he would assert that any dissent against mass immigration or managerial neoliberalism is retrograde because it's as inevitable as the seasons. Um, how deliberate was the construction of the new elite and who exactly are they? What are their values? Yeah, so the new elite are basically the people who are running the country, not just mm. politically, but in media, creative industries, cultural institutions, the knowledge class, mm. universities, schools. Um, basically, are they're university graduates. They've gone through the elite institutions, Oxbridge, Russell Group. Their parents tend to also belong to the graduate class or tend to be fairly affluent professionals, managers. They tend to live in the big cities, university towns. Um, and crucially, unlike the old elite, they lean left on lots of cultural questions. So they've basically embraced radical progressivism, not just social liberalism. They've mm. essentially gone quite woke in how they see the world. Um, they're very um, present on social media. They disproportionately dominate many of the institutions, BBC, newspapers, uh, museums, galleries. Um, and they are really adept at using that economic, social, and cultural power to um, to basically project their values onto everybody else, to magnify their voice, um, and to exclude um, or stigmatize the values and the voice of many other people uh, in society. So cultural conservatives, uh, gender critical uh, folks, uh, and so on. So the new elite are basically reshaping the national conversation around their group. Now, you know, one of the reasons why I'm optimistic about Britain is because, you know, 20 years ago, that that was, that was that would have had much greater consequences. Today, however, the new elite are increasingly being challenged by an alternative ecosystem, right? The YouTube channels, the Substacks, uh, you know, the the the, the, the alternative platforms, the, the new TV channels, the news channels, you know, outside of the BBC and so on. And I think the new elite can sense that. I think they can sense that, look, they're actually beginning to suffer losses. 1.7 million people have stopped watching Radio 4 today since Brexit. The media landscape is massively fragmenting. Some of the biggest selling books over the last year, I'm happy to say, including my own, Nigel Bigger's book on colonialism, Hannah Barnes's book on Tavistock, you know, publishers are realizing, hang on a minute, there's an audience out here that doesn't just want to be told, you know, woke 101 all the time, mm -hmm. every day. They want something different. So I'm a little bit optimistic in that I can sense that the power of the new elite is being challenged. But, you know, as we've learned over the last decade, what they will do when they are challenged is they will double down. And they will double down and move to try and cement their power and cement their voice at the expense of other people in society. And so I think, you know, if we end up with a Labour government, Labour minority government, Labour coalition, Labour majority, I suspect the volume is going to go up on all this. We're going to have, you know, racial equality legislation. We're going to have, you know, God knows what's going to be going on in schools with kids and all the stuff that you can see in other parts of uh, of the UK, I suspect that's going to be mainstreamed. And this is going to get ugly. It's going to get really, really ugly because there are lots of mums and dads out there who are looking at, at, at these political belief systems being imposed on their kids and asking very understandable questions, which is, where's the science for this? Hmm. Seriously, where's the science for this? Why is my 11-year-old being taught how to choke their partner during sex? Hmm. Why is my kid being taught there are 73 genders? 
This is this isn't science, right? This is a political belief system. So can we have a conversation about this as a country? In fact, let's not have a conversation, right? Let's have it out. Let's have a real political battle over this issue. Because when people say, oh, this is a low salience issue, nobody cares about this issue. Nobody cares about gender identity theory. You know what I say? I say, look at America. Yeah. Nobody used to care about it then until people started talking about it. Look at Scotland. Nobody cared about it until they started looking at what the SNP were about to do, which was crazy. And when they did, 80% of Scots said, I don't really want that to happen. Mm. So one of the key points in this book is radical progressivism is basically the worldview of max 15 to 20% of the country, max. Right. So when you saw, for example, Gary Lineker, right, saying, oh, it's terrible. Government's immigration policies are terrible. Mm. And everybody on Twitter says, oh, wow, this guy's speaking for the majority. No, he's speaking for like 20%. Mm. Uh, and so where I think the balance has come unstuck is because progressives dominate the institutions and Twitter, we often think they're projecting or representing the majority view when in fact, usually their beliefs are held by one in five people, max. So um, conservatives who shy away from those battles are shooting themselves in the foot because if they turn up the volume on some of those, they're going to find a very receptive audience. Yeah. So it's not just the issues as well. It's that we can take lessons from our enemies in how to use power to conserve the culture that they are deliberately trying to erode. There's a, a principle from a book called The Populist Delusion, which says that mm. essentially the, the organized minority will always triumph over the fragmented, disorganized majority, even if the majority has true convictions. Well, you know, we did that on the higher education bill. Hmm. I've had calls from all over the world, like, how did you guys get this bill through? Mm. This is the, one of the first pieces of legislation that defends academic freedom in universities. How did you do it? You must have had a grassroots social movement. Uh, I'm like, no. Mm. We had like a dozen people. Yeah. But but who were disciplined, organized, committed, um, experts in their field. Um, if you want to bring about serious change, right, you basically need political advisors, you need lawyers, you need campaigners, mm. and you need people who know that topic inside and out. And if you get those people in the room, forget the new party, forget the social movement, forget the 10 million clicks online, you get those people in a room mm. with an objective, dynamite follows, yeah. right? That's a lesson of the last three years in my life. You get organized on these issues and you get the right people in the room who will give up time to do this for no other purpose than they believe in it, mm. then you're going to change the game. Mm. So uh, here's here's maybe a question to drill down on the values of the new elite. How sincere are their convictions? Because at one, at one point in the book, you critiqued some academic's book called The Tyranny of Merit, which oh, yeah. my, Michael my, Sandel. Actually, I like that book. Right. Okay. So so one of the one of the critiques that you seem to level at it was that the insular belief system of progressivism inculcated by university is a kind of tribal signifier for the privilege of the new elite to mm. share amongst themselves. Yeah. And by by putting that as a dominant paradigm within the university, they're pulling the ladder up after themselves, yeah. socially speaking. Yeah. So so how sincere are our elites as true believers of trans ideology, for example, or is this just something they, they nod along with to get a job? Yeah, so, I mean, I've been influenced a lot by people who have worked on things like social status, mm. elite formation. I know you've had Rob Henderson on the show before. Rob's a great guy and he's been really influential in my thinking. I mean, look, I think what's going on here is a lot, what's going on is that the elite in this country used to use money 
estates, titles, wealth to project their status mm -hmm. and their social honor. Private members' clubs on Pall Mall. Yep. What's going on now is a new elite are using their luxury beliefs, radical progressivism, wokeism, to signal to other elites that they're high status mm. and are advocating beliefs that are low cost to them, like mass migration, open borders, fluid families, gender identity theory, mm. but which impose enormous costs on other people in society, especially people who rely on national identity, strong families, our history, our values as a really important source of status. So what the new elite essentially is doing is tearing down the cultural guardrails, right? I mean, what liberalism is doing, let's call it what it is, social liberalism, is tearing down the, the cultural guardrails. It's, it's got a ratchet effect inbuilt into it. It has to constantly break the chains, right? Uh, whether that's related to you know sex and gender identity, whether it's related to revising our national history, whether it's related to you know uh, sort of transhumanism, whether it's related to um, you know the end of marriage or um, you know all the ascribed identities that we used to cherish, it, they want to basically dilute those, erode those, and just ideally get get rid of them. So then the individual is just standing there free from obligation, free from ties, free from responsibilities, and is standing there as a kind of like, you know, sovereign, hmm. you know, lemming that doesn't really have any obligation to anybody else, right? Hmm. And then what follows is like endless loneliness and deaths of despair and slow motion suicides and rising levels of mental health problems among our young people because nobody has any meaning anymore nobody has any purpose and nobody has any collective sense of self so you know you can see this across the board i'll give you one example in the aftermath of natcon you know watching kind of liberal progressives on twitter and media lose i'm, I'm not allowed to swear on this show but lose, yeah. lose their shit yeah. uh, <laughs> i was kind of laughing because the biggest thing that really riled them was that there were all these people talking about the importance of family. Yep. They were saying, how dare they talk about family, keeping families together, mum and dad looking after the kids and all their adults mm. and having governments that have pro-family policies. This is like retrograde. This is 1950s. This is reactionary. This is fascism. And I'm sort of looking at this, like my parents divorced when I was five. I mean, you know, the idea that family formation it's something we should just not talk about. It's like ridiculous. The evidence is overwhelming. And the evidence is clear, right? I mean, mum and dad leave um, and you're raised by a single parent. The chances of you going to prison are off the charts, getting arrested, doing badly at school, becoming a drug addict, becoming an alcoholic. You know, you're basically put in a really bad position from, from day one of mum or dad leaving. And about 43% of 18-year-olds of in this country right now, um, about 43% of kids are not living with mum and dad by the time they turn 18, mm. right? So that's why we have some of the highest rates of family breakdown in the Western world, mm. right? And and it's why NatCons want to talk about it because it's critically important. And to, and to be blunt, even if you wanted to use the language of the, the new elite, if you want a, a, a big return on investment 
if you if you want a really good economic return, which is not even the most important part of all this, then have strong families mm. because the return is enormous. You want to solve the housing crisis, encourage people to stay together, right? Don't encourage them to break off and you know go their separate ways. I mean, it just feeds into absolutely everything. And I think what what struck me about the, the reaction to to the conference is you had a lot of people from the new elite who, ironically, are the most likely to get married, stay married, have kids while married, basically slating everybody else off for talking about the importance of family formation. Mm. So there is a hypocrisy that comes with the new elite, which really stinks. And when you call it out, they hate it. I mean, the reaction to this book has been revealing. I mean, they're basically hypocrites. Uh, do they believe the things they're saying? Sometimes. Are those things more importantly an indicator of status as they see it, that they're projecting to other members of the elite to acquire more status for themselves? Absolutely. Many members of the new elite are pretty conventional in, in, in how they live, but the moment they go online, they're like, you know, Princess Wokohontas, and they're sort of like screaming from the rooftops about how they love all these, you know, mad ideas that are being imported from other parts of the world. And I just think calling that out is the first step in getting back to a sensible conversation like family, hmm. which is critically important. Because if we don't if we don't keep families together, as you know, and we don't start having more kids, 50 years from now, we're going to have some major, major, major problems. Yeah, well, I just spoke to Stephen Shaw. Uh, by the time this discussion's out, it will be on the website. And he was what well, the gentleman that was just cancelled from Cambridge trying to screen his film. My friend invited him and, and just out, falling outside of the bill, they got no method of redress for it. But he investigated over the course of seven years in pretty much every country that even sub-Saharan Africa is trending the same way of demographic decline that the UK is. Yeah. Uh, in your book, I, I actually cited the statistic to him, funnily enough, cross-pollination. 2020, there's more pensioners than there were newborns. Yeah. Similar things just happening in India, Bangladesh, they're yeah. trending the same way. And so by 2050, there's going to be 800 million people who succumb to unplanned childlessness. They wanted children, but they never had them. And the impacts of that on the economy, on personal meaning, on social stability is going to be devastating. And so we yeah. do need to get a hold of this. Well, absolutely. But I mean, I even stopped short partly in this book of going full on into the discussion around birth rates and population, largely because the book really isn't about that. I will look at mm. it in more detail in the future. But, um, you know, if you just look at how Britain's population now has been reshaped, it, the biggest driver of population growth in this country now is migration. Yeah. Um, and if you want some estimates, then by 2040, um, we're going to have somewhere around 5 million more people in the country, which is equivalent to about five Birminghams, around about that. Um, and uh, nobody yet has given me a reasonable, satisfactory answer to how on earth we're going to accommodate this population growth over the longer term within a national health service, housing sector, welfare state, um, and economy that is already creaking, if not collapsing, because the answer, we need people to do jobs, sort of ignores the fact that those people also get old and those people also need support and those mm. people also need resources. So what I would like to see is a sustainable long-term plan for how we're going to manage this country. And that plan cannot simply be rooted in how to drive the economy. It also has to be rooted in things that politicians are utterly crap at talking about, like how we can um, motivate um, 
and, and give people a sense of happiness and peace, how we can um, slow down social and cultural change so we can protect who we are and pass on that cultural inheritance to the next generation. And to go back to your point about Suella, one of the things that really irritates a lot of people today is they can all sense that Britishness or Englishness are basically being rewrapped around international themes of diversity and multiculturalism. Ugh. And that, well, this is what the, yeah. this is what the, uh, my colleague Eric, Eric Kaufman talks about as, as asymmetrical multiculturalism. Yep. So we now, under the new elite, we're allowed to celebrate every identity, history, and culture so long as it's not our own. And the only way in which you're able to talk about Britishness and Englishness, more or less, as we see during every major football tournament or every major sporting event, is if it is repackaged as a celebration of diversity and multiculturalism. Now, saying that a country is open to diversity and multiculturalism is fine, but it's also like saying that country doesn't have an identity of its own. Yeah, you can't have a cultural preference for other cultures. It's a self-defeating principle. So I think... This is one of those debates that is going to become much more pressing because the reality is a majority of people out there derive their status, their esteem, and their sense of belonging from what the new elite are, are increasingly eroding or deriding, which is their national identity. Um, and so we're going to have these parallel conversations going on about who are we, uh, where do we belong, and what is our home. And uh, that's where I think, again, the conservatives are going to get pushed into either having to lean into that discussion or not endure over the longer term. Yeah. I, I, so I wanted to add one question, my, but I want to put a pause on it there because uh, I wanted to go in a slightly different direction. We'll come back to the values of the new elite mm. shortly. But when when you say the people out there versus the divide of the people in power, the, mm. the, they don't have the, or they don't care about the will of the majority. Um, I wanted to raise something about the methodology of your book yeah. because obviously you cite a lot of polling and statistics yeah. and you've got a large amount of, of aggregated opinions in there. And I think that's a, that's a, good, that's a good route to go down to get a, a broad understanding of what the country want. Um, would a critical... Uh, what, what word should I use? Uh, would an eyebrow being raised be fair if they said, okay, for example, YouGov... We know Nadim Zahawi's involvement during the pandemic mm. just so happened that 71% of every poll that came out about the policies that he was instituting as vaccine ministers decided to be favourable. Um, we know that academics who aren't as good as yourself go into this and they don't have the same rigour with their statistics or uh, with the sampling sizes. So is relying on polling the best way to make the argument that the elite are out of touch or is it more so that the values themselves have historical congruity with British identity? And yeah. if the people follow it, then then they're right to follow it. But it's the values that are more important than the majority opinion. Well, one of the things I always have to be wary of is I've got to be evidence-led. Yeah. Right? I always need to be able to point to the information, the stats that support the point I'm making. Yeah. So... Um, that's also especially important when you're trying to change people's minds. And what this book is about is I'm trying to say to the new elite, look, um, we're having a conversation here. I'm asking you to make some compromises mm. because if you don't, what we saw in the 2010s is going to escalate. Mm. Uh, and they really will only listen to evidence-based arguments and, 
and uh, they want to know where you're getting the information from, and they want to know, you know, all of those things. Now, even in even even if you do all of that, they're still likely to try and you know discredit and disparage arguments that basically don't fit with their existing beliefs, which is what we've seen partly in reaction among some people to the book. Um, but no, I do think evidence is important. The thing about the polling industry that I do find remarkable, however, is the way in which the polling industry hasn't really had a great ten years. Uh, and I'm talking overall. I don't want to pick on individual pollsters. Um, it's not just that they've been outflanked by a few things and they've been openly political on a, on a few occasions, especially at the Brexit referendum, classic examples of pollsters issuing polls on the day, trying to basically influence people as they're voting. Nate Silverman's poll that uh, Hillary Clinton had a 91% chance of winning the election springs to mind. So, so we can all point to those examples. What worries me more about the polling industry today is that it is disproportionately dominated by people who tend to share the same values, come from the same backgrounds, and tend to see the world in the same way. And the reason that is problematic is it often leads to what we call premature question closure. So some questions that might be important to lots of voters are sort of shut down by the industry because it doesn't fit with the existing belief system. It might be that they simply don't ask questions that are considered important to many voters, but the people running the agencies might not consider them important, let's say on gender identity mm -hmm. or um, migration or um, you know how we think about our history. I can tell you as a pollster, I've got a polling company, a lot of people who come to me say they've gone around three or four polling houses and they've tried to get questions asked about free speech, free expression, trans rights, um, the rights of women, what's happening to kids in schools. And they say the pollsters either won't ask them or mm. they will have a sense that they're being overcharged for asking those questions. So I don't think it's a conspiracy. I just think like any industry, polling like academia, like the civil service, leans quite heavily in one direction. And I don't think pointing at people like Nadeem Zahawi and saying, but he's a conservative, really answers the yeah. critique that I'm delivering, which is that Culturally, the zeitgeist in that industry, which is pretty obvious when you read the press releases from almost every polling house uh, as you get them, you know, sort of go out of their way to try and package things in a certain way. Or you look at the activities that they do outside of polling, it's very much within a kind of progressive framework. Um, I think that speaks volumes. And I think that kind of helps to explain why over the last 10, 15 years or so, um, you know, we've not really had as, as good a handle on the public mood outside of these elite groups as we should have had. So, uh, it, it's. I wanted to wanted to come back actually to the the point of institutional capture because much with the polling industry with the universities, they have been captured by the W word that you used earlier, which is which is woke, and we often in our sphere of alternate media have been continually accused of not being able to define it even though leftists invented the word. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about that. Yeah. So, so I, I wanted what to- Yeah. I, want, I, I wanted to get your sort of working definition because you've already alluded to the idea that it might have germinated in liberalism. You, you critiqued Fukuyama in the book as well, a little bit. And also we've got Peter Pagosian coming in later in the week. Yeah, he, he's when, a great guy. He's fantastic. When, when, and he's slowly shedding some of his liberal sensibilities. When he was on Tim Paul's show, they had a bit of a contention where Tim Paul said that woke is a product of algorithms. So like the great awakening that you showed where yeah. all the press started reporting on it after Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. Whereas Pagosian said it's downstream of 
postmodern, post-Marxist ideas from yeah. university. So, so yeah. what is Woken and where does it come from? Yeah, well, it, <laughs> well, it's certainly got longer roots in the algorithms. I mean, that's mm. a very short-term view. I mean, you know, there are scholars in my world who would trace wokeism or what I would call radical progressivism because mm. I think essentially wokeism, firstly, for different reasons, I think the word woke is problematic. Um, radical progressivism is what I prefer. And mm. I think if you look at it through that lens, you can really trace woke wokeism to the sort of early 1900s, to kind of bohemian, utopian, revolu revolutionary movements, some Marxist, that came out of areas like New York, that came mm. out of North America, that later sort of mixed with um, academic theories that came through France, postmodernism, deconstructionism, a lot of influence from people like Herbert Marcuse in how we think about shutting down the marketplace of ideas in order to prioritize the goals of social justice. And I, so I think the roots of radical progressivism are much longer than, than social media, which is why I'm not really convinced by some of the books that have come out since 2015. I think this has been a long time coming. And you could see really the, the, the beginnings of, of this in the 60s and the 70s with the university protests in America um, and some of the Black Panther movements and so on who were really embracing this revolutionary outlook. What is woke? Let me give you an answer to that. In my mind, wokeism or radical progressivism is the sacralization of racial, sexual, and gender minorities who are seen to be essentially more important than the majority and is a way of looking at the world through a very crude, a very simplistic, and a very binary framework in which different identity groups are either seen as being oppressors or victims. And it is an ideology that is skeptical, if not hostile, toward the scientific method. It has absolutely no interest in empirical evidence or research which undermines its core claims. And those claims are mainly about the idea that differences between groups are simply because of racism discrimination and institutional prejudice, which is why wokeism is a pseudo-religion. It is not a political ideology as such. It is more of a political religion that has its high priests who preach about anti-racism, white privilege, white guilt, which are highly contested, if not very problematic terms. And it is really hostile to anybody who is seen to question its core claims and who are promptly cancelled, um, discredited, or attacked, much like a religion would would treat um apostates. Yeah. Would would treat apostates. So so radical progressivism in my mind is a very distinctive uh movement. It's distinctive from liberalism. Um it's distinctive from Marxism, even if it's been influenced by by Marxist currents. And um, if you look at all the evidence that we have on who subscribes to this belief system, the radical progressives who represent about 15% of Britain at the moment, maybe 20%, they have a very distinctive, unique profile. Mm. Highly educated, very wealthy, live in the big cities. They believe the country is institutionally racist. They believe racism and prejudice are a major problem. They think rights for minority groups have not gone far enough 
They are 100% supportive of Black Lives Matter. They believe that we should all stop and address historic injustices that happened centuries ago, and we cannot move forward as a society unless we do that. And they are also, as I point out in the book, the most politically intolerant. They are the most likely to unfriend, to block, to harass, and to discriminate against those who hold different political beliefs. So while they say they're liberal, while they say they're progressive, while they say they love diversity, actually, they really do not like intellectual diversity at all. They are the most hostile towards that. And the last point about them is on Twitter. They're everywhere because they're five times more likely than anybody else to tweet, or I should say scream, their political views uh, uh, at everybody else online. So all the hashtags that you see, FBPE, follow back, pro-European, flags and pronouns are a great predictor of a radical progressive. Uh, they dominate that square online. Uh, and as a consequence, we all are left to think that this worldview is a worldview of a majority, but it's actually the worldview of about 15%. Yeah, vocal minority manufacturing consent. So so from that, would it be fair to say that that you Capital. really just slim that down. <laughs> well, well, you know, big ears, there for listening, you know. Uh, would it be fair to say then that, that Capital W Woke is a false sense of enlightenment to engineered conspiratorial inequities between identity groups and therefore their entitlement to use socialism as a means of redress to redistribute resources to those groups until we reach some sort of utopia. I mean, essentially, but there's a great example, I think, of how radical progressivism operates, right? This is still unbelievable that this happened. Tony Sewell, yep. really important campaigner, just made enormous contributions to British life. I mean, a really important guy. Wrote the uh, or, or led the government report on racial disparities, right? Mm. Which looked at why some groups are doing better than others in society and concluded that those group based disparities were not simply about racism and prejudice. Mm. Because, as any serious analyst would know, levels of racism and prejudice in Britain have never been as low as they are today, right? Britain is not an institutionally racist society okay now tony made that argument in the aftermath when liberal progressives kind of lost their minds and ran around trying to shout and scream until the report went away my old university the university of nottingham had offered tony an honorary doctorate for his campaigning work they withdrew that offer of an honorary doctorate because tony had become politically controversial. At the same time, the University of Nottingham, which has two campuses in China, were more than happy to take endless amounts of money from Chinese communists yep. who are participating in genocide, but who are not politically controversial. That story is radical progressivism in a nutshell, because it will go out of its way to cancel to demonize, to destroy the lives of people who challenge its core religious claims. And what Tony said was spot on. You look at the evidence, and I do this in different roles that I have in my life. If you look at the evidence on how different groups are performing in British society, it is the white working class kids who are routinely the worst performers at every level of the education system, right? Who are the most likely to slide into alcoholism and drug abuse. 
It is kids from minority ethnic backgrounds, black Indians, black Africans, um, uh, Chinese, uh, who are powering ahead in the education system. In fact, British Afro-Caribbean kids are now often outperforming their white counterparts at school and going on to university. So this myth, this narrative that radical progressives preach, that Britain is institutionally racist and anybody who isn't white is being screwed over by the system, is just not empirically valid, is basically hollow, um, and anybody who points this out is kind of roundly attacked. And I just think, really, it stinks. And and mm. and the worst bit of all is that the people who promote these narratives are the very highly educated academics, think tankers, journalists, columnists, who are supposed to be interested in objective knowledge, research, and understanding what is actually happening on the in, in, in the world. But they've sort of bought in en masse to this political ideology, either because they think it's good for their careers, either because they're trying to signal their status to other members of the elite, or maybe they're just stupid. But to me, over the last couple of years, I've just lost so much respect for so many people I used to have respect for because they're just playing this game while good people like Tony actually losing things that they deserve. Hmm. And to me, that just stinks. Yeah, the, the, the incoherence seems to suggest that at least for some... They're not true believers and it is a bit of a grift. And and something to link back to the YouGov conversation is the topics they do choose for polls are often representing a company and saying, what is your opinion of this company? Do they do enough diversity and inclusion? Do they do enough sustainability? Obviously trying to get metrics that allow their ESG scores to go up to then get more subsidies. And lots of these companies don't truly believe in the trans agenda. Oh, don't, don't, yeah, don't get me started on white capitalism. Well, exactly. So, so <laughs> all, all they want is to is to get the, the prop up from BlackRock State Street and Vanguard at the end of the day. And so, and so I do think there's, there's quite a few academics even that will just sort of nod along with these incoherencies just to just to keep tenure. Because well, what, well, yeah, I mean, the companies are the worst of it. I mean, if you look, you know, there's now a consensus on the left and the right. I mean, basically, the, polit the politicization of capital, right? Woke capitalism. It's not actually just about the hypocrisy. It's not mm. just about Sainsbury's telling us all to celebrate Black History Month while its former CEO participated in a tax avoidance scheme. Uh, it's not just, uh, you know, Nike telling us to kind of get down with wokeism while simultaneously running sweatshops across much of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, you know, it's not Yorkshire Tea telling us to, you know, become overtly political uh, or, or go elsewhere. Um, you know, it, the, the irony of all of this, the worst bit of all of this, is that companies are now imposing themselves on the civic, political, democratic um, arena where they, they didn't used to be, mm. right? It's not their job to tell us what to think and how to vote uh, and what we should think about these highly contested um, jobs. It's not NatWest's role to tell us that we should accept pronouns and we should buy into gender identity theory. You're a bank, right? Mm. You're not a church, right? You're a bank. Mm. Just stick with finance, right? And let us get on being consumers. And the, the worst bit too is, I'm pretty convinced, looking at the ESG stuff, that we're either creating a, a another financial bubble because a lot of the valuations of ESG companies are pretty dodgy, and you can go back actually and look at the 2008 financial crisis, and a lot of that was was arguably inflated by many of the political measures that were introduced in the 90s with Bill Clinton and the, wanting to expand home ownership, and that kind of set the foundation for lots of the subprime mortgages, which then kind of inflated and created the financial crisis. I mean, there are lots of 
uh, areas where woke capitalism is deeply deeply problematic um, and uh, I suspect is going to have more of an impact going forward than we currently anticipate. And if you look at the direction of the US with Bud Light and the, the, the boycotts now of Target and other companies that are happening now, you know, I don't want to see business politicized in that way. But, you know, if you're going to enter the culture war, mm. you know, people are going to take sides, yep. right? And and that's the message, I think, for, for big corporates. Like, if you want to run around telling everybody to use a gender-neutral toilet and wear a rainbow lanyard and, you know, refer to everybody with, you know, multiple different pronouns... Um, Voters are gonna voters are gonna act accordingly, hmm. right? And as long as they're ready for that, and you know, push on through. So you got an accurate assessment in here of everything that's horrible. In the last few minutes before we wrap up, then, what's your normative vision of what we can do to make things better? What what would your suggestions be to to policymakers and prospective politicians? I'm not convinced policymakers can do anything, but I th I've been thinking long and hard about about this. Look, point one, um, I think we need to build a completely alternative different ecosystem, right? I think the the YouTubes, the Substacks, the Unheards, the GB News, the you know, Lotus Eaters, all of this stuff, building an alternative ecosystem is the first thing. We're going to have to dodge the online harms bill like a bullet, but... For the first time in history, we now have a thinking, writing, intellectual, cultural class that is not dependent on the institutions. Hmm. So step one is embrace that and promote that. Step two is basically start to um, expose the extent to which neither of the main parties are in touch with a large majority of voters and that actually they were established to represent a very different era in our politics. Um, so I think uh, looking more seriously at alternative political vehicles is going to be important. Step three is opening up the institutions to include a much wider range of voices within them, calling out the fact that the BBC can have a very intense debate about gender pay, when if you look at the class education profile of its workers, I mean, it is ridiculous. Uh, calling out institutions that don't give sufficient voice to people who come from outside of the new elite, universities, uh, BBC, um, advertise, advertisement companies, marketing companies, publishers. We need to open up the institutions because I don't want us to set up parallel institutions. That's a recipe for disaster. Um, and then I think step four is trying to think through what is an alternative story narrative framework that can actually give people a sense that something else is possible, that there is an alternative and rallying around that and delivering action through that. And as I said earlier on, action is not necessarily building a mass movement. Action can also be something that is delivered through a very small committed team of people who have a clear list of demands that they want to see met, right? Going into elections, going into uh, you know big public debates. These are the things we're interested in doing. These are the things we want to see happen. Let's try and do some of that. And you can see that in the US already starting to happen school board system and parents beginning to mobilize and so on. I think basically this is where Britain is behind the curve. We're kind of five years behind everyone, everyone else on these issues because we've had the conservatives in power. They don't want to go near them. They're scared. They don't know what they want to say. They're obsessed with status. Um, but I think those are some of the practical things that you could actually think about doing. I'm very skeptical of like, let's just bring everything, everybody together, man. Yeah, no maybe, chance. Maybe, maybe they'll all get along because these issues, you know what? These issues are contested and people do have beliefs. And disagreement in, in a democracy is healthy, right? Disagreement is healthy. 
But also, if you believe in these things, you can't just sit it out. You're going to actually have to get active. You're going to have to become an activist in order to be uh, trying to bring about change. Yeah, and there are also some new elite beliefs which seem to be irreconcilable. So we just need to assert a mythology which rouses our side, the majority, in the same way that, that Blair was able to lead the sort of vanguard in the 90s. So we can actually make good on the promise of things can get better, right? That'd be, that'd be nice. Wonderful. It starts with this book. Yeah, and I, I do recommend people go out and get it, of course. The link is in the description. Hit me up on Twitter. Let me know what you think. Yep, your Twitter is also linked. Matt, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks it's been for a having pleasure. me. Yep, come back anytime you do another I'm one. I'm going to follow you up on that. Fantastic. Thanks very much for watching, everyone, and goodbye.